Well, good evening. Been a big weekend. And it continues. It's good to see the stayers <laughs> come out tonight uh, after a big weekend. Um, yeah, tonight, as Stuart mentioned, we are continuing through our series on Romans. And we're going to hit uh, Romans 15 tonight. And if you keep your Bibles open at that chapter, I'll be sort of jumping around a bit uh, to try and sort of pull it all together. Uh, Romans 15, uh, the first part of Romans 15 actually uh, flows out of Romans 14, which Stuart spoke on last week. So uh, I need to sort of pull that together and then we're going to look at Paul's um, strategy for mission and outreach and his future plans uh, beyond where he is at the moment when he wrote Romans. So that's what's ahead of us. So let me pray and we'll ask God to open our hearts. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word, that you reveal your purposes for this world and for us as individuals. Thank you for calling us, Lord, for teaching us and instructing us and guiding us through your Holy Spirit. We pray that we will uh, read these passages and uh, understand what you have to speak to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, think I was having a conversation with Stuart a couple of weeks ago about how well we knew our grandparents. I guess most of us, we've all had at least four grandparents, we know their names, but how well did you know what they did in life? Uh, and beyond their names, yeah, what sort of people they were. That's reasonable. But how about your great-grandparents? Do you know their names? Or what about your great-great-grandparents? It kind of, it's a struggle at that point. And you come to these people have had an influence or some fed something into my life and I really know nothing about them. Only a couple of generations down the track. But have you ever wondered what would be written on your tombstone? What sort of legacy will you leave behind when you die? Tonight we're going to be look at, looking at the legacy that Paul left. But how will people remember you? And for how long will they remember you? For what will they remember you? And I want, to just think, want you just to think about what mark on the world will you have left when you die? When it comes to leaving a legacy, few people would have had the impact on history as Saul of Tarsus, who later became known as the Apostle Paul. I don't know how accurate that is, but anyway, that's a, an ancient uh, mosaic of, uh, of what someone thought Paul looked like. But Paul co-pastored the first church founded in a Gentile or non-Jewish city. He planted churches in Cyprus, in Turkey, in Greece, and the Balkans. He directed a mission in Crete. He added to the work of gospel outreach in Rome. And he may have personally carried the gospel all the way to the western end of the empire, which is to the left on that map, uh, all the way to Spain. 
the foundations and the teaching that Paul laid down facilitated the spread of Christianity beyond just that part of the world, but in, into uh, North Africa later on, further north into Russia and Europe, the British Isles, Scandinavia, and later, later sorry, in later centuries to the New World, Africa, Asia and the Pacific. Paul's work, his significance, his legacy has lasted nearly 2,000 years. In Romans 15, Paul unveils his heart to us. He shows us more of what motivates him, what drives him, and his big vision of the task that God gave him. And he also talks about the prayer battle that drove it all forward, this relationship and prayer that undergirded his work of um, sharing the gospel. You see, Paul, uh, sorry, God gave Paul an incredible task to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. Why? So that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, verse 16 in chapter 15. You see, Paul saw himself as a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Now, just pausing for a moment, considering that word minister. In Rome, the Greek word that's translated as minister would have meant someone who offered a significant service to the government, usually free of charge to gain influence. Thanks, boss. Uh, <laughs> is that a check on what I just said, or is that just a confirmation? <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but in Jerusalem... Back in, back in Israel, in Jerusalem, the word referred to a servant of the temple. And so when Paul wrote these words, he obviously had both notions in mind. He sees himself granted the high privilege of offering an important service to the kingdom of Jesus. But not only that, he saw it as a priestly duty, a sacred service, because it was for the kingdom of God. Now we mustn't overlook the fact that non-Jews or Gentiles were regarded by Jews as defiled and therefore they were totally unfit to come into the presence of God. But Paul acted as a kind of priestly mediator and with the help of the Holy Spirit, he's brought these people into a relationship with Jesus. They were forgiven and cleansed and filled with the ultimate gift of the Holy Spirit. And they are now completely welcomed into God's presence. They are accepted by God. And this is Paul's big vision of his task and his sense of identity as a minister. And it fits with the great commission imperative of Jesus in Matthew 28, 20 to go and make disciples of all nations. And it's a vision that demands that from Paul an incredible amount of effort and commitment and drive. So as we read Paul's words in Romans 15, we sense something of the energy, the joy, the passion, the excitement and striving for the kingdom of Jesus that is part and parcel of Paul's ministry. And so we, and we see kind of bubbling up from his understanding of his role, a sense of pride in his achievements, which he encapsulates in verse 17 when he says, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. 
And when you read these words, you kind of think, oh, he's a little bit full of himself, isn't he? This boast. But unlike in our Australian culture, it was quite acceptable in Greek and Roman times for people to speak of their claims to fame, to proclaim how important they were, um, broadcast their achievements. We'd probably call it selling ourselves these days. But it was actually expected that a person would seek to be honoured in such a way, blowing their own trumpet, so to speak. And although we may not boast in this way, I guess we can relate to the desire for a sense of worth and significance in our own eyes and in the eyes of others. Furthermore, the person who believes in Jesus also wishes to be of value in God's eyes. And for Paul, this, this feeling good about himself before God is now always wrapped up in Jesus. Without Jesus, he sees himself as condemned and separated from God. But in Christ, he is accepted by God. He is separated for a purpose. Often the word used is holy, separated. And this extends to his ministry endeavors, endeavors to the extent that they are done in partnership with Jesus. Paul's work is Christ's work, done through him. Yet it's still Paul. And the sense of um, excitement, of achievement, the exaltation and pride come through as he outlines these achievements. Have a look at verse 19 when he says, By the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, which is modern-day Yugoslavia or Bosnia, Croatia, that part of the world, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Wow. Wow. he had the power given to him by the Holy Spirit of God to proclaim the gospel through vast areas of the Roman Empire. He was given the power to perform signs and wonders and miracles. And so he made a difference by preaching, teaching, the witness of his own life his example. With those miracles, the Holy Spirit empowering him and guiding him, Paul has moved across this world which did not know the one true God. And as he did so, he left Christianity in his wake. Paul's words sounds as if he had Jesus' missionary commission at the forefront of his mind when he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth in Acts 1.8. You notice that it sort of starts small in Judea, expands to Samaria and then extends to the ends of the world. And this would explain Paul's desire to, to push the frontiers even beyond Rome and all the way across to Spain in the far west of the empire. Practically, however, he needed a plan because any move towards Spain would require a base. He would require supporters who would support this work of going forward. And so Paul is looking to Rome. And this is part of the reason for writing this letter to the Romans, 
Though he's never been there, he already knows a number of Christian believers living there and he holds a high opinion of those believers. He does not for a moment wish, to think, wish them to think that he is writing this weighty, this important letter because they're ignorant. Quite the opposite. It's because of their understanding of the faith and their serious zeal for ministry. But Paul wants to make sure they understood the gospel and understood his purpose for what he was wanting to do. And so he goes to great lengths to explain a number of things in this letter. And we've covered that over quite a number of weeks this year. He writes in uh, verse 15, those words, I've written you quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me. Do you remember Paul is writing from where? Do you remember where Paul's writing from at this point? Ephesus. Ephesus. Paul was planning to take an offertory, an offering from the Macedonian Christians to the poor Christians in uh, in Israel, back in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. So he had this plan of attack. And then he was planning to journey from there to Rome and then on. So this just puts it a little bit in context about what he's got in mind here. And why it's important for him to establish this firm, solid base. But reading these words here in verse 15, you'd have to wonder at which places in this letter that Paul held his breath as he wrote. You see, he addressed some major, some rather significant issues. And when you think about it, no church is without its problems. And you kind of wonder whether it was the doctrine of faith alone, which the Romans especially needed to hear. Perhaps it was the relevance of the law or the need to reckon yourself dead to sin or predestination. It might have been the need for a living a consistent life in the world surrounded by pagan practices and behaviour. Or perhaps it was the instruction that they needed to hear of the relationship between citizens and the state. Or, as we're, we're hitting uh, chapters 14 and 15, the need to accept one another. Probably everything Paul covered was an issue for some individual or group within Rome. And without detracting from the fact that overall they were knowledgeable and we're able to teach and minister to one another's needs. However, the overall thrust of the letter makes one think that two issues above all else were crucial. That is the way in which a person finds acceptance with God by faith apart from the law and the place of Jew and Gentile united together in the kingdom of God. There is every sign that when Paul came to this great, practical exhortation at the end of his letter this, uh, this, that he, as he addresses mutual acceptance that he was hitting a very sensitive issue within the uh, Christian church in Rome it was like he was grasping a hot potato, he kind of left this issue at last uh, for the last because it was so important nevertheless, nevertheless it is the logical, practical result of everything else that he's explained, everything else that's gone before in the letter. 
and leads up to this. And their reaction to this teaching, to these instructions, to this encouragement, would to a large extent determine what sort of future cooperation he might expect in his mission and ministry. You know, one of the great joys in life and one of the greatest challenges is living in relationship with other people. Whether it's in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, in our clubs or organisations, or in our churches. Where there are unresolved disagreements, which often arise from self-interest, relationships suffer. And organisations or workplaces and churches struggle to be effective when there are dysfunctional relationships within those organisations. And I guess we only have to look at our political parties at the moment to see the truth of this. Where there is disunity in an organisation, with people pulling in all sorts of different directions, that organisation loses its ability to focus on its primary purpose and to perform the job that was uh, given or ordained to do. Paul could sense that there were some tensions arising between the believers in Rome, so he writes to encourage them to accept one another's differences. This was incredibly important to Paul, as it meant the difference between the success and failure of his great vision to unite the Jews and the Gentiles in fellowship under the lordship of Jesus. And that was important because it, it was crucial to the success of his mission to advance God's kingdom. In Rome and elsewhere, two seemingly trivial questions were causing great friction and division. That, and Stuart spoke on this last week. Those two things were eating meat and the observance of religious holidays. The basic problem was the coming together of two very different cultures in Christian churches. For example, the Jews observed the Sabbath and kept various other holy days, whereas Gentiles were unaccustomed to them. It was also important for the Jews that meat was prepared in the correct way and that it had not been offered to idols before being sold in the marketplace. And when these two groups came together, the Jewish Christians saw the second group as eating polluted food, corrupted food, and ignoring the sacred festivals. And the non-Jewish believers, on the other hand, saw the Jewish believers as being bound by superstitious taboos and not understanding or appreciating the freedom the gospel gave them. Paul's answer to them, quite simple really, and it's summed up in his words in verse 7. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you. And this flows out of the key, um, key words in, in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 1, where it says, Accept the one whose faith is weak. And then later on, verse 3, God has accepted them. So this is uh, the important key concept in this passage. Accept one another. And the reason... Because God has accepted you, warts and all, for, with all your imperfections, faults and flaws, hang-ups. God has accepted you. We are unique, we're different, we're individual. 
And God accepts us just as we are. It's something that we struggle to understand sometimes. And he's saying, because God has accepted you, you need to accept each other. It's a simple but rather powerful argument. The word he used for, is there for accept in Greek terms is a word used in friendship. It's a term of friendship. It means to take someone into your circle of friends and acquaintances. Jesus brought us into his inner circle. He brought us into his family. And in his church, he wants us to accept fellow believers. Even if we have a measure of difficulty with some of their, their customs and practices, Yes, we're all different. We all appreciate different styles of music or um, forms of worship. But they should be minor matters. They shouldn't cause friction. We need to accept one another. But of course, there are limits to such acceptance, let me say. And here in Romans 14 and 15, just remember, Paul is dealing with Christian believers in a Christian community. So as we come to chapter 15, Paul says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul here is concerned about things which are not salvation issues. They're not about well-defined moral conduct, but rather where there is some latitude or uncertainty in the way Different Christians act. That's what he's addressing here. They let those minor things disturb you or distress you. Accept one another. You see, there's no way the unity and fellowship of a church community can be built without a self-sacrificing spirit among its people. If it, you see, if everyone is out for themselves... And this is the message the world gives us today. Look out for number one. The most important person in the world is you. How often do we hear that now in the media? But instead, in the community of Christ, the message is other person-centeredness. Be sympathetic and understanding of the needs of others. And sometimes it requires a bit of sacrifice. It requires a bit of give. But as people serve one another, that fellowship will flourish and all will benefit. Paul cites Jesus as the ultimate example of this. You see, the hostility of sinful humanity towards God made fellowship between God and people impossible. But Jesus came to earth and he allowed that opposition to fall on him without retaliating and with constant goodwill. And he took the sins of the world upon himself and he suffered and died on the cross. And in doing so, he brought reconciliation between humanity and God. However, Paul is not fooled into thinking that this kind of mutual acceptance will come easily. Ultimately, he looks to God. 
And it's God who inspires patience and gives encouragement to help his people find agreement. And in doing so, the Christian community will give and present a united witness to the glory of God. When you had to see that last night, as we, Carol's moved from down there to down there to finally in here, the Blue Shirt Brigade was an incredible witness to our wider community. And when lots of people, I hadn't seen before, people from the community, and the message was these guys are reaching out. These guys are doing something significant. They could see us working together in a rather stressful, tough, <laughs> challenging situation. And yet, doing so, we pulled off something fantastic. And I think that was an incredible witness to those who saw it and saw how we behaved as a church. So coming back to Romans 15, in verses 7 to 13, Paul re-emphasizes the importance of God's acceptance of both Jews and Gentiles and their acceptance of one another. This is key. For Paul, mutual acceptance lay at the heart of God's plan for the world. And far from being an, an incidental piece of teaching on keeping the peace, tacked on at the end of a very uh, amazing uh, piece of writing, this whole section on mutual acceptance flows from the mission of Jesus to fulfill the promises of God to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, to reconcile them to God. But note that God's purposes... God's purpose is never exclusive to Israel. Even from the very beginning, the scriptures envisaged the day when all nations, not just Israel, all nations of the world would find acceptance. And it was for this too that Jesus became a servant and died on the cross. And it was for this reason too that Paul was anointed and appointed an apostle to the nations. And so it's fitting that the letter should climax with a plea to Christian believers on both sides of the fence to accept one another and rejoice in each other's membership of God's people, of God's family, just as Paul did. The goal is not just that people of all nations should be united under the name of Christ, but that they should be also be able to enjoy each other's fellowship in a spirit of peace and joy. And accordingly, Paul closes that little section with a prayer that God, by his Holy Spirit, should fill his people to overflowing with joy and peace and hope. Verse 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the second half of chapter 15 talks about Paul's mission or missionary strategy. Verses uh, 20 to 24. What we see here is that God gives his ministers, remember the previous definition? He gives his ministers enormous scope and freedom to work out the strategy and details of how they will fulfill their commission. Paul had his own way of doing things. He does not clutch to himself the whole missionary task, no. Paul wants to break new ground. He wants to plant seeds and leave it to others to water and tend. And if someone else gets there before him, well and good. He's quite happy to leave that place and go elsewhere. 
He's not one who seeks places to preach because of some need of his own. The need is for the gospel to be heard and like a military general, he fights a campaign and pushes on to the next enemy stronghold. In places like Syria and Antioch, Christianity was well established, but in others like Ephesus, there are teams of ministers that Paul trains over a period of time. They carry up the work of taking the gospel beyond um, the area immediately around Ephesus. And we see as we read about uh, Paul's journeys in Acts, that there's some places he cannot visit anymore because of persecution, because he became a marked man. Whatever the reason, he can make the incredible claim that as far as Syria, Cyprus, Cilicia, Galatia, Asia Minor, Greece and Crete, Yugoslavia or Illyricum, Albania, are concerned. He's been there, done that. His job is done. He's left others trained to continue that work. But now new frontiers are beckoning. And this, of course, could only be the case if he saw his task as establishing a group of committed, faithful people in the major cities. Because he needed to rely on them to, to um, spread the word into the smaller towns and villages. Ephesus may not have been typical in every respect, every respect but it is a model of a well-thought-out mission strategy. And so for two years, Paul held daily discussion classes in a rented hall, in which time, as Luke tells us in Acts 19.10, the whole province of Asia heard the word of God. Amazing, isn't it? The exception in Paul's strategy of not building on another's foundation was his projected, his hoped for, visit to Rome. And he realised it was an exception and that this was probably why he'd always been hindered in his desire to, uh, to get there. Nevertheless, it was a godly desire and it was an important exception. For it's unthinkable that the one who was commissioned by Jesus to carry his name to the Gentiles and their kings should dodge the capital city of the entire empire, even given that others had got there before him. However, Paul's plans for getting there, getting to Rome, differed somewhat from the way that God was arranging for him to to reach an audience in Rome far beyond anything he could have dreamed he would reach. As I mentioned before, Paul's plans were to travel from Ephesus to Jerusalem and then journey to Rome and then to Spain. But in the process, he was arrested in Jerusalem, spent a couple of years in prison and before he finally arrived in Rome in chains. But in the process of his trial as a political prisoner, who has had the opportunity to present the good news of new life in Jesus to some of the most influential and powerful people in the empire. Paul has left us a legacy, a great legacy. What kind of legacy will you leave in this life? Probably won't be as great as what Paul did. But, you know, one of the joys in my life is to be being able to make a difference in the lives of some of the people that God has brought across my path over the years. I don't know for how long or for what I will be remembered after I leave this world. But I hope that my legacy will be to have made a difference in the lives of just a few people, however small or insignificant it may have been. 
And so can I encourage you this evening to invest in the relationships God has brought to you of the people that God has brought into your life. God has brought us all into this church. He's placed us in this Christian family. In this place. It's his church, his family. He's brought us here. God wants us to learn from one another. He wants us to encourage one another. He wants us to accept one another. Despite the differences we may have in the way we do things. And so we need to be patient with one another. It's an important role encouraging people in their relationship with the Lord. And it's important to grasp the opportunities to make his name known in the world around us. You may have sponsored a child through compassion. It's an amazing opportunity to make a difference in a child's life somewhere else in the world. Just writing a letter, encouraging them, makes a huge difference. And over the years I've seen that happen. It surprises me sometimes when people come up to me and say, do you remember me? And I'd say, nope, <laughs> in all honesty. You were part of the fellowship group, you know, 40 odd years ago. And a uh, few things you said then made a lot to me, changed my life. And I think, wow. <laughs> now I think I, it just, just uh, is very encouraging, very uh, enriching to hear words like that. And you like to hear that from your kids, those of you who have children, that they'll actually acknowledge your role as a parent for the wise advice, for the support you gave, have given them over the years. You can make a difference. You make more of a difference than you realise. That's the legacy we can leave. So can I leave you with that thought as we've reviewed Paul's legacy and uh, the difference he made in this world. We too can make a difference. A difference for Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the life and ministry of Paul and for what we can learn from him. Lord, help us to be aware of other people around us, to accept them, accept their differences, and to rejoice in the fact that we are all unique and that we are all precious in your sight. Our Lord, help us to make a difference in this world, this world we find ourselves in. And may our lives not be wasted. May we give you the honour and glory in all that we do, all that we say. And in your name we pray. Amen. Oh, Q&A, forgot about that. <laughs> Any questions? It's been a challenge to try and pull all that together in uh, Romans 15, but I hope that sort of helped uh, you to understand that passage and uh, how it all connects together to see the context in which Paul is writing and just the important things that he was considering. So, no questions? Yes? Oh, Stuart's got a question? No, that's good. Okay. <laughs>